back to the Been There, Read That podcast. This week we wanted to share the audio recording of a sermon that was recently delivered at a mission meeting down in Corpus Christi, Texas. The sermon is about how the resurrection is God's answer to evil and suffering. We hope that this is beneficial in your studies and that you'll enjoy. God bless. It's good to see everyone that's out tonight. It's been said a couple times already for everybody's presence. Um, I saw my cousin walk in and I heard her say, what's my cousin doing here? That was the first thought that I had. What's my cousin doing here? Uh, there's people here tonight that I was not expecting to see, and apparently not expecting to see me either. It's very good to be here. I appreciate all the support from the congregations that have come out. We're very thankful for your presence tonight. <clears throat> uh, I also want Chance to note, uh, Chance is with me from our own congregation, and um, Randy talked to me at, l- at lunch. He says, um, he says, man, you went short last night. And I thought, nobody at home will believe that. <laughs> Glad to be with Randy, so I could be the short, short speaker. You know, he did a great job. He talked about trials and how trials sometimes cause people to wander away from the faith. And that's kind of what I'm going to talk about at length when we talk about a God's answer to death and suffering. <clears throat> I don't know how it is that I've grown this stick in life. I'm not called ask, asking to marry people. I'm called to bury people. Um, I do a lot of funerals, and I don't know why that is or how that's been. Uh, funerals used to be very difficult for me to do. Um, and yet, there is uh, a special aspect of funerals. Funerals are actually a good thing in some ways. And we'll start off with the words of the wise man. He put it this way, Better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Now the wise man says a lot of weird things in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're not following along and understanding what he's doing, he uses some sarcasm. He uses all types of of expressions. And he's being dead serious here. He's saying it's good to go to the house of mourning because that's where we are all headed. You have to at some time in life get your mind wrapped around, you will die. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And funerals are good because we get to go to a funeral and we get to reflect on a person's life and the reality of death. You cannot escape it. You have to get your mind wrapped around it. A couple verses later he says this, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. What's he mean by that? If you go through life avoiding the house of mourning, You are a fool. You cannot live always in the moment, in the joy of the moment. You have to reckon with the frailty and the finality of death. We have to reflect on death. So when we talk about why does God allow death and suffering, we have to reflect tonight for a little while on the nature of death, why there is death in the world, before we can answer the question of why a good God would allow such things. I want to ask you this question, not for an answer out loud to think about, 
What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of the year 2020? COVID. Or a pandemic, right? Now I want you to listen to me very carefully. I'm not saying that I want to go back and relive all the aspects of the pandemic. But there are blessings that come from it that you have to reflect on and grow from. Okay? Light shines brightest in the darkness. I want to talk about, one day I'm going to have a sermon on COVID blessings. I haven't done it yet. Okay, sure, just a couple with you. The first Sunday when the mandate came down that people aren't supposed to be worshiping, we assembled at church. People might have been a little bit nervous. I tried to break that. I said, you know, when was the last time that all false religions were shut down in town and we were the only ones open? That's a blessing. We asked for God to strengthen the kingdom and weaken the enemy, and yet strength comes through trial. That's what happened in part, and we can have blessing in that. One of the greatest blessings was that COVID rocked people's world and made them come face to face with the reality of death. They could not avoid it. CNN wouldn't let them. They were thinking about it all the time, and it affected people in various ways. A lot of people were struck with panic. I, there's a guy in town that I used to go, and my family would meet with his family at this donut shop, and every week we would eat donuts together and just visit around, and we didn't get to do that. They shut the donut shop down for a while. We didn't see him when we started to go back, and one day he just showed up on my front porch, and he said, uh, we brought you some donuts. We've been missing you. He said, man, I was watching the news, and he said, I started to have panic attacks and heart palpitations, and I thought, i got to get over this. i got to start living life again. Now, some people were terrified to the point of paralysis. They could not leave their homes for months and months on end. They were in great despair. Where did they turn to in that moment? Most people are turning to science, and they're wanting to, what can science tell us about this pandemic? What can science tell us to get over this? And science starts scrambling around trying to come up with answers, and they couldn't come up with all the answers. They've never come up with all the answers. There are some things that science did not know. Science comes up with this vaccine, and they say this vaccine is going to save your life. If you will take this, you will not get COVID, and yet people took it, and they still got COVID. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not against science. I'm thankful for science. I'm thankful for medicine. Medicine is a wonderful thing. We live in a blessed country to have such ready access to, me to medicine. I have a sister who uh, just last year went through eight rounds of chemotherapy and surgery. She would not be here today if it weren't for science and medicine. That's a great blessing. But listen carefully. Science can only delay the inevitable. It cannot defeat it. It can only delay the reality of death. Science cannot provide the answer to some of life's most important questions. It's outside the realm of science. And so we come to the million-dollar question, what is the church's response to fear and death? What is our response when we face a COVID-type situation or when you're, you're meeting with a person who has just lost their baby? They've just lost their grandfather. What is it that we're supposed to say? How is it that we are supposed to react as the church? The church must react with a proclamation of faith and hope to those who are in Christ and a reminder that God reigns at all times. 
COVID did not dethrone Christ. We talked about last night how Christ has all authority. He is the king of heaven and earth. All authority remains in Christ. He is the one in control, and nothing can overcome the reign of Christ. We have to understand that Christ is the answer to the problem of death and suffering. We're going to talk about death and why death is a problem, but you always have to keep in mind that Christ is the answer to that problem. Let's talk about that for just a little bit. You know, atheists will say there can be no good God because there is death and suffering. If there were a good God, you wouldn't have death and suffering. Two things to think about when people say something like that. How do they know what evil and death and suffering is without a standard of goodness? That's what C.S. Lewis had to struggle with. How can I say a good God cannot be in existence if there is evil and suffering if there is not something by which to define good and evil? That's who God is. Number two, an atheist can say a good God would not allow this. But you know what? They still have not come up with a solution to the problem of suffering and death. And they cannot. It's an empty system that has no solution or hope. You can begin to question, how could a good God allow such thing? That's not a solution. Okay? We need to talk about the solution as well as really the nature of the problem. The problem began near the beginning. Not in the beginning, but near the beginning. I want you to go back with me to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, the beginning of creation, from God's vantage point, he begins to create things, and he keeps saying something at the end of creation points. He keeps saying, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. And then we come to the creation of mankind, and he says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I've made all these things. He says, let us make man in our image. This is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit designing humankind in their likeness. They're going to share in our reign over the earth. We're going to delegate some authority to them so that they can have dominion over creation. And then he says this, it was very good. Okay. Here's the point. In the beginning, there was no evil, death, pain, and sorrow. It was good and very good. God is not the author of evil and death and suffering. Get that in your mind. He is the God of life, of goodness. So how do we get to where we are? Look at chapter 2, verse 15, the familiar passage. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded him, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Do not eat of this tree, this one tree. That's the rule. If you do, death gets unleashed. Now that's a choice that you have. Are you going to submit to God and obey His law, or are you going to bring death into the world? God creates goodness and abundance. Everything man could ever dream of having on earth. God is not the author, and He says if you do this, 
you will be the author of death. Enters the devil. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? Here he begins asking for clarification of the law. Did he actually say this? Now she got it second hand from her husband. And he's, he's attacking the wife and he's saying, did God actually say this? And so she clarifies and she says, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God has said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. She understands clearly what the rule was, and you might have some discussion about why this bit about not touching it is at an end, but clearly she, know, she, she knew she was not to eat of it. She's clarified it, and so now that it's been clarified, he, he rejects it. He says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's a three-letter word injected, so small, but with such great ramifications, you will not die. There's little addition there. You cannot add to or take away from the word of God, you will not die. God is really, he's being a mean God. He's wanting to withhold some goodness from Absolutely wrong. God made all good. Get access to it. He's saying, I don't want you to eat this. You eat of it, you'll die. That's the evil. And the devil said, no, there's, there's more there for you. He's holding you back. And so, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was to be, the desire to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Listen to this. He was with her, and he ate. Apparently, Adam is standing there beside Eve, and the devil is talking to Eve and tempting her, and Adam just lets it happen. He hasn't protected the garden. He hasn't protected his family as he should. He just stood by. In fact, later on, First Timothy chapter 2, there's more clarification. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. In other words, when Adam ate the fruit, he did it with his eyes wide open. He made a choice. I want to be united with my wife in death rather than with my God in life. Listen carefully. Death came about because man chose with eyes wide open to open Pandora's box and let death loose. It is man's problem, not God's problem. The good God created all things good for his glory and for his honor, and man unleashed death. God allows death to occur because man chose it. It is a problem of our creation, and yet a problem that is beyond our fixing. We cannot work enough. We are not smart enough, intelligent enough. We do not share the divine element that can overcome death. You can work and work and work. Science can go on and on and on. It can only delay the inevitable. God is the only one who can bring about the solution to the problem. Death is kind of like a weapon that we have loaded up and handed over to the devil. It's his greatest tool in this world, and he has used it brilliantly throughout history into this very day to defeat humankind. We need to ask a question. How is death defined 
in the context of Genesis chapter 3. What kind of death are we talking about here? Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. This is the curse upon the man. So you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. What's he talking about here? Just as I took you from the dust and formed you, so you will go back to the dust. I created you, now you will decreate. It's physical death that's under consideration here. That's the curse that's been brought about. Why is that so important? Because a lot of our religious neighbors will say, because Adam sinned, we all die spiritually. We inherit spiritual death. That's called total depravity. What's being said, 319, what we inherit is a body that dies physically. All human beings, as soon as you are born, you are beginning the death process. Death is both a process and an end state. You can say, there's a man who is a dead man walking. What do we mean? It's a, he is so sure he will die, we're just waiting around till it happens. You cannot delay the inevitable. This is interesting. I want you to think about this. We talk in terms of resurrection where we think the body coming back to life. That happens in the Bible. We'll talk about that some. But every time the Lord God healed a person and gave them back the function of a dead part of their body, that's a form of resurrection. It's the conquering of the effects of death. Think about it. The process as well as the end state was dealt with in the person of Christ. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. Genesis 3, where we have the introduction of the problem and the curse, that's just the beginning of the story. We're only in Genesis 3. There's a whole lot more that comes with it, and you have to keep reading. God's solution to this problem can be summed up in one word. It's called grace. Man did not deserve a solution because he chose death. Man could not provide his own solution. All he could do is provide the problem. But God graciously brought about a solution so that the world could be reconciled and the problem of death could be dealt with. With the death sentence comes a promise of hope. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is a statement to the, the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is referred to as the Proto-Evangelium or the first gospel. You may look at that and you think, how is that the first gospel? This is the good news wrapped up here. Okay, You trick the woman. Guess what? She's going to have some kids. You're going to have some kids. They're going to war against each other for a long time. And then eventually, one of her children will rise, the seed. And he's not going to make war with the other children. He's going to crush your head. But there's something interesting. You'll also bruise his heel. Now in Texas, you got snakes places. I won't say every word to freak people out. you got snakes a lot of places. Kill a snake by crushing the head. You don't do it by chopping off the tail. You chop off the head. You crush the head. How does a snake kill a person? By biting them in the heel. What's here in mystery, kind of, by the revelation? There's going to be a battle between the seed of the woman and the serpent himself to the dead. That's what's coming about, and that's key for us to understand and start looking for as we go throughout Scripture. Now, the woman heard this. She's promised a seed. You know what's interesting in 
just a couple verses later, Adam renames his wife. And he says this, and Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, pessimistic husbands, I'm just going through this, we might have said, she's the mother of the dead. The woman's fault, right? And he says she's the mother of the living. Why? Because in one of her offspring is going to be the Savior that's coming to bring life. They're anticipating salvation and the return of life through the promised seed. We go a little bit further. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife, Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I required a man from the Lord. What she say there? Here's the man child. Here's the seed that's going to crush the serpent. She's excited about this child that's born. Unfortunately, not the case. This is Cain. What do we know about Cain? Well, 1 John chapter 10, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain was not the, the seed of the woman to bring salvation. He was of the seed of the devil. And he kills his brother Abel, who was of the righteous seed. You know, later on in Matthew chapter 23, when Jesus is raining down woes upon the Pharisees and the scribes and Sadducees, he says, On you shall come all the blood from righteous Abel to Zechariah, son of Berechiah, who killed on the altar. He said, Abel was a prophet to whom I spoke, and you, you kill him, and you'll kill me just like you did all the prophets. Cain, the seed of the serpent, killed Abel, the seed of the woman. But notice, notice what goes on here again in uh, Genesis chapter 4, verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again. This is after Abel was killed. And she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom God, who, whom Cain killed. He's get, he has appointed another seed. You know what appointed means? It means raised up. Abel was the righteous one, and he dies, but God raised up the hope of the seed. What are we learning here? The devil can kill people. God can keep raising up, important term, the seed hope. Okay. We go a little further. Genesis chapter 5, verse 29. Oh, pause here. You reckon when Adam and Eve ate the fruit that they figured the first funeral they would go to would be their child's? How would you like that as a parent? They probably expect, yes, I will die. I'll live 900 and some years, long life, and then I'll die. But they had the experience, the first time they experienced death, one of their children killed their other child. They lose one, and the other one is alienated, sent to wander across the world. That means they're losing grandchildren, too. And yet God raises up the hope and Seth. From his line, and he called his name Noah. This is the seventh from Seth. Noah means rest, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. When God cursed the land, when he cursed the man, Noah, we think we're going to name him Rest. Here's Rest, because he's going to bring. What are they saying? This is the seed. This is the one God promised us. He's going to bring us the salvation. The rest, the curse is going to be undone in this one. Well, what goes on in the story of Noah? Well, you have a scene of what I would call decreation. What I mean? 
God covers the entire world in water. Where were we in Genesis chapter 1? The world was without form and void and was covered in water. And out of the water starts coming land. What happens in Genesis? Uh, later on here in chapter 6 and 7 and 8, God puts the world back in water. That's deep creation. He destroys every living, breathing thing. And then out of that starts to appear the land. And the animals come off the ark. And Noah comes off the ark. And the world is repopulated. This is a scene of decreation and new creation. Here's the point. The world has gotten so, so wicked, it's filled with... God says we're going to hit reset and start over again here. And yet, even though He starts things over again, there's going to be some more problems that fall. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, the Bible says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. <coughs> Noah did not save himself by himself. Obedience was required in knowing the ark, but God was gracious in giving him the blueprints for the ark and allowing him to build the ark and being patient with him as he built the ark. That's grace. God providing the solution and saving this man. I saw a man a while back, a brother posted me, he said, uh, grace did not save Noah, obedience did. And I thought, what do you get that wrong? Obedience and grace are not opposed to one another. They work together. It was gracious of God to do such a thing. Whenever they emerge off the ark, God said, He blessed Noah and his sons and said, They'd be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Where have we heard that before? That's the commission He gave to Adam. Noah is the new Adam figure. We're going to start over here. Okay, so get this Cain kills Abel. But God raises up Seth. Things get wicked. God kills all the seed of the serpent. Starts over again with Noah and his family. What happens? Evil starts cropping up again. Not very long after, we're back in a vineyard, in a garden. There's some forbidden fruit. Man gets drunk. Some nakedness occurs. A lot of rep repetition here. And a curse comes down. And very shortly thereafter, we're in... Genesis chapter 10 and 11, where we have nations rebelling against God, and here we are again back in mass confusion. Much death and sorrow and wickedness filling the earth against God and contrary to His will. Here's the point that you're supposed to get in just the opening chapters, and this goes on throughout the rest of the Bible. God can kill off the wicked, but as long as He keeps allowing people to live, there's going to keep being wicked people. Satan can keep trying to kill the righteous. God's going to keep raising them up. Is this just going to go on endlessly? What's going to be the solution to this problem? Well, see, the woman's going to have to come and crush the head of the serpent while the serpent bites his heel. This is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, listen carefully, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted." Why was it necessary for God the Son to come and take on human flesh and walk amongst men? 
so that he could share in our humanity, in our death, and through death, bring the defeat of death. People ask, why would a good God allow suffering and pain and death in the world? Man chose that. The better question, why would a good God send his righteous son, his sinless son, to die on behalf of wicked men who deserve death? Because God's not like us. He's a gracious and a good and a loving God. And he brings the solution that we could not provide for ourselves. He came to defeat the... It says here that death was the, the weapon. Through the fear of death, Satan has reigned over people. People who are outside of Christ ought to be terrified of death. That's how Satan rules. But as Christians, we should have no fear of death because that weapon has been stripped of its power through the resurrection of Christ. I'm going to just be straight with you. It bothers me, it worries me when Christians are afraid and terrified of death. That's where the devil wants you to be. There is no sense for a Christian being afraid of death. We're not under bondage any longer. We have been free. The victory has been assured. You say, well, Nathan, I look out here in society, I'm watching the news, and it doesn't look like there's victory that's taking place. That is the earthly perspective that's called walking by sight. And there is the divine perspective called walking by faith, where by faith we see Satan cast out of heaven, where we see him cast down, where we see his head crushed, as Jesus dies on the cross and then resurrects. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, had he known that Christ was going to come back, he would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That was his undoing moment. Because if God can raise Jesus from the dead, He can do it for you and me too. And there's nothing for us to be worried about any longer. There's no reason to be afraid of death. Because though this body perishes, it's coming back to life. Though our friend dies and we're separated and we miss them, I'm not saying it's, it's wrong to be sad at funerals. I'm sad when I'm, I'm separated for a long time from a friend. But one day, by faith, if they're in Christ, we'll be back together. Because the fear of death has been taken away. He gives aid to the seed of Abraham. When God made the promise to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, what did he say? That in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Never been just about Jews. This was God's plan for the redemption of mankind who would turn back to Him and submit to His reign. He's offering hope. The hope of the resurrection. I love how Paul wrote up in Philippians, this is not the attitude of most people during the pandemic in the world. Think about that. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fake fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My, desi my desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Do you look at it as being far better to depart and to be with the Lord? While we're here living, we use that as opportunities to be fruitful in our family, in our congregation, in our community, to try to give other people the hope of the resurrection. But if we were going to be selfish about things, it's just about me, it's far better to go to be with Christ. Think about what he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 6. So we are always of good courage. Does that describe us? We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. See, saying, doesn't matter if we die, if we walk by faith, if you're walking by sight, death is a terrible enemy. But if you're walking by faith, you have the hope of standing before God one day in glory for His honor and for His glory to receive the reward. He said this in chapter 15, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's a fact that nobody else can get around. What makes Christianity different from all religions is the resurrection. That is the sticking point. That's why in the book of Acts, every time there's a gospel sermon being preached, there's discussion about the resurrection. The apostles just go around rubbing the resurrection in everybody's face because they're going to have to deal with it. This is the hope of the gospel. That's the good news. And we got on a, a phone call and we were talking about what topics we were going to discuss at this meeting and stuff. And we got off the phone call, we decided on some things, and it hit me. And I had to write, write them back. I said, hey, can I teach on the resurrection during the gospel meeting? It seems like in the book of Acts, they always talk on the resurrection whenever they're having evangelistic sermon. Maybe that's something that I should incorporate in my teaching. Are we fixated on the resurrection? Christ is the first fruits. He's the first one that got planted in the ground and then sprouted up and was given his resurrection body. The glory and honor of God. Of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now when I have this discussion with people, they, they get confused a little bit and they say, how is Christ the first fruits? Because... What about Lazarus? And what about that, that person that Elijah raised with? I mean, there's people that have been raised from the dead. Yeah, in fact, whenever Jesus died on the cross, Matthew says the rocks were open and so were the tombs, and dead people got up and stayed around the tombs until Jesus had appeared again, and then they went back into the city. Why is God raising me? And how can, how can he be the first fruits? Here's how Christ is the first fruits. His resurrection was unlike any other because God put life back in his body and it never came out. Death is the separation of spirit and body. Christ was resurrected bodily from the grave. And then he ascended to heaven to the right hand of God. He's the only one to be raised from the dead, never to die again. Lazarus was raised, that's amazing, but he died again. 
We're looking forward to the day when we are raised bodily from the ground, never to die again. How do we know that's a fact that will happen? Because Christ is the first fruits. Never forget that and always proclaim the glory of Christ. That brings us to two passages I want to close with. We come to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we love coming here to verse 21 where we talk about there is an antitype which also doth now save baptism. I love using this passage with people and I'll introduce and I'll say, now be honest with me, does baptism now save or not save? The devil introduced three letters and all you got to do is change one here. Does baptism now save or not save? That's the critical question. But in doing that, sometimes we miss a little bit of what's going on in the passage. Look, it begins, For Christ also suffered once for the sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. What's he doing? Christ died and was resurrected. That's where he begins. Notice where he ends. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone in heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. What's he talking about there? Death and resurrection. So at the beginning and the end, what's under consideration is the death and the resurrection of Christ. What's sandwiched in between? Two stories. The story of Noah and the ark. What do we say Noah and the ark was? Decreation and new creation. You know what that's called? Death and resurrection. You know what that's followed by? Baptism doth also now save. You know what happens in baptism? The old man dies and the new one comes alive. That's called death and resurrection. Noah and baptism are sandwiched in between the death and resurrection of Christ. The death and the resurrection of Christ is what brings Scripture together and gives its continuity. It's what's talking about the first creation and the new creation, the resurrection of the body, death and God's answer in resurrection. We have hope because Christ came, he lived as a human, he died, was buried, and then God didn't leave him there, he raised him from the dead, never to die again. And because of that fact, we have hope if we share in his death, burial, and resurrection. Well, how do we do that? Paul would say it this way, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When we teach the concept of baptism, we have to stress to people, this is how we share in the new creation that is Jesus Christ. He came and died and was resurrected. That's our hope if we are buried in Him and raised to walk in newness of life. That's not me saving myself. That's grace given from God that we could share in such a hope. He came to crush the serpent and to bring about hope of the resurrection. Now, if you're here tonight you have not obeyed the gospel, what do I mean by that? You have to believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. John chapter 3, verse 16. That's what Christ said. You have to repent of your sins. Quit living your life. Submit yourself to the reign of Christ. Luke 13, 3. Confess His name. Matthew 10, verse 32. And be baptized in water for the remission of sin. Share in His death, burial, and resurrection so that you can have the hope 
of the resurrection. If we don't share spiritually in the resurrection of Christ, we will not share in the hope of the resurrection when the physical comes. Though we die physically, yet there is a resurrection awaiting for God's people. The answer to death and suffering in the world is Christ and His resurrection. If you're here tonight, you need to obey the gospel. Why don't you do that? If you need to make your life right and you've not been living in light of the resurrection, renew your faith and your hope in Christ as we stand Better is our sacrifice. He paid the, he paid the price, the price. He paid it all upon the cross. No longer bound by sin or with the eternal loss. He took my sin and washed it away. When I was immersed in that watery grave, I heard that gospel call because he paid it all.